As we go into our fourth episode of the third season, we invoke your name, thereby inviting you to this episode to watch over us. Picard, please grant our eyes the ability to always see our number one, to never become assimilated, but welcome back those who have been. Grant us the presence to always engage in the energy to make it so. In your name, we podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reengage, where we rewatch TNG, a show we loved when we were younger. And now we reengage with episode by episode to see if it holds up to older eyes. I'm Jimmy G, and I'll be your number one this week as we talk about season three, episode four. Who watches The Watchers? Let's say hello to our other number ones, Eric. How you do? I'm a number one. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jimmy? It's so lovely to hear your voice. I like that intro. Thank you. Uh, Kate, how you do? Number one with a bullet, baby. <laughs> mm. And uh, Greg, over to you. Very excited to be here. I was a number one dancer in high school for uh, when I auditioned for Oklahoma. And uh, it's still, you know, kind of something I think about to this day. I'm a number one dancer. It's on your resume. <laughs> uh, all right. So we are with episode four, season three, star date 43175.5, air date the week of October 16th, 1989. Greg, we'll go back to you. What was happening? around this star date. There are a bunch of things happening, continuing of stories that we've been talking about. So uh, October 15th, uh, just the day before, South African President F.W. de Klerk uh, freed uh, the ANC founder, Walter Sisulu, uh, and four other political prisoners. Uh, he had just taken power, if you remember from uh, the first episode, and this is the beginning, uh, you know, another stage in the step of dismantling apartheid. Uh, and on that note, also in uh, October 18th, two days after this aired, East German uh, leader Eric Honecker resigned. And it was another step in the fall of East Germany. If you remember, we had talked about how the East Germans were allowed to go into Berlin uh, despite the Berlin Wall being there. And it's notable that Eric Honecker was the builder of the Berlin Wall in 1961. He was the administrator who set that up then. And so his resignation uh, in some ignominy here, uh, they might have used uh, blackmail of some material that he was actually a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, even though he was captured by the Nazis, they said he had renounced uh, communism uh, to the fascists. And so this was held over his head and was one of the reasons why he resigned uh, on this date. And then very soon we'll get to the fall of that uh, Berlin Wall. And this is just another step on that. Uh, but on a little bit of uh, sports news on the domestic side of things, the day after this aired, there was an earthquake in San Francisco, 6.9 on the Richter scale during game three of the World Series. It was... Uh, huge because most people were watching live or you know many people across uh, the country were watching live and then the cameras started to shake and then went went off and it was frightening no agreed yeah that's scary i think they, ha they had to delay something like 10 days too right 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 because candlestick park i think had a crack in it uh, yeah or, uh, Some, I, something crazy something like that so it was, yeah it was a very serious earthquake. ended up killing 67 uh, in the uh, entirety. So a very sad event. I remember the images of the uh, upper deck of the highways collapsing and then cars falling into it. It, was, it almost uh, is, is, is some of those terrifying images that you think of when you're watching like action series and action events. And you're like, oh yeah, that's how awful it was, but it happened uh, for real. Every time I would drive on the viaduct, which those yes. of you who uh, are not from Seattle, uh, we used to have one of those double-decker uh, highways uh, that was right on the waterfront uh, on on land made of landfill and soot and hopes and dreams, I guess. Uh, and every time I would drive on that, I would picture that earthquake because I, re I remember those images like seared into my brain. Me too. Me too. It was rough. Um, but yeah, that's what was happening uh, here in the world. All right. Thank you for the somber... <laughs> introduction to the show <laughs> what a uh kate what can a you uh can you cheer us up with a song <laughs> well we we continue on week two of miss you much by miss janet jackson miss mm. jackson 
if you're nasty. I'm nasty. <laughs> the number one movie was Look Who's Talking. I love this movie. Um, oh, yeah, Amy Heckerling. Right? Forever. Which, if I remember correctly, starts with a bunch of sperm uh, with voices yes. racing towards an egg. And I remember watching that with my parents <laughs> and just being mortified. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting in. I'm getting there. I'm getting in there. I was... Think of it this way. It's George Siegel's sperm. Mortified <laughs> <laughs> oh, all over again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, and on, on the Great Broadway, uh, Dangerous Games opened at the Nederlander for four performances. Uh, this I had to look this one up. Uh, just four performances. This Argentinia-inspired musical uh, sets the first act in a 1930s brothel while two brothers dance a violent tango with a new virgin. The second act resets the Orpheus myth <laughs> a new during virgin? the country's... <laughs> a new virgin. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Uh huh. The second act resets the Orpheus myth during the country's brutal junta political regime in the 1970s, where Orpheus is a rock singer who follows his beloved to a hell guarded by fascists. How did that only last four performances? I mean, it's, it's time for a revival. It did not. <laughs> or at least show tunes should do a reading. Like, come on. I'm glad you also caught the new version. That caught, that's directly from their press kit. And I was like, mm, I'm not sure how that works. Brand new or like new? Ah, you know. <laughs> I like Certi the, certified? Uh, a debutante <laughs> might be a better word to say it. Maybe. I don't know. Let's Perhaps. crack it open. That's why it failed. People came and was like, that's not a new version. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's pop culture news. All right. Well, let's get in uh, to some of the creative side of this episode. Our director was Robert Weimer. Uh, he did eight episodes of TNG. We'll get to you, Eric. Don't worry. Uh, and he did an episode of, uh, uh, directed an episode of um, D Space Nine as well. Uh, some Superboy thrown in there. Uh, Sequest, among many others. Um, sadly, he left us in 2014. Um, our writers, uh, a little more storied, if I may. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, Richard Manning, uh, 15 episodes of TNG, ranging from doing the teleplay to story editor, two credits for uh, an actual writer of TNG, this being one of those episodes. Uh, he wrote one episode for DS9, 10 episodes for Scar uh, Farscape, and my personal fave, uh, he did one episode of Space Precinct. I don't know if you guys remember this. No, uh, I do not. It wow. actually had a full season. And, and holy shit! And what's amazing about this show is that it's like Hill Street Blues in space. It takes oh itself gosh. seriously. <laughs> it has fairly bad alien people who are like you know the the deputy sheriff or like right. the manservant, uh, and they you know they they fall into capers, murders, and they're going around this colony that they live in in a different galaxy trying to adjust as earthers because the main person is a uh he's a captain or he's a he's a police captain from new york city oh of course. was anybody in it uh, you know i meant to write it down because i knew you would know some of them especially the the two cops look very yeah. familiar but they didn't jump out like i even looked right, uh, right, at right. them and it didn't jump out but you would know them oh, from something i gotta check that shit out so, i do not remember yeah. that and i just watched like and the, i just i just watched the the first season of Monster Squad, if you guys don't remember that, from the 70s. Yes, uh, yes. You were saying how much you loved it. I loved it. I watched yeah. the whole thing. Of course, of, you know, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Space Precinct. I have to check that Hilarious. one out. Space Precinct. Space Precinct. All right. And then our other writer was Hans Beemler. He did 101 episodes of D Space Nine. So almost wow. the entire Fuck, run from wow. uh, the second year 
maybe middle of the first season, even though it was in, uh, I think it was 1994 he joined the crew, uh, all the way up until 1999. Uh, and that ranged from being a script editor, a supervising uh, producer, and then executive producer in the very last year for about six episodes. Um, and he also did 26 episodes of TNG. So uh, a lot of cred for um, our writers there, uh, especially yeah. sci-fi cred. So uh, let's talk about the guest stars, Eric. Holy shit. Oh, geez. This is such an amazing goddamn group. All right. So we'll start on the lower end. I'm so frightened. Uh, no, do not be. It's incredible. Uh, let me get to a place where I can read my fucking writing a little better because y'all's beautiful face. Fuck you. I don't need to see you. All right. Here we go. <laughs> start with uh, Catherine Lee Scott as Nuria. She was, if you ever watched the show, the lead ingenue in Dark Shadows. Oh. As the four characters, you know, four generations of this character, brilliant, amazing, great gig. She is a world traveler and a polymath. She is still acting, amazing life. She started a publishing company in 1985 that does nonfiction books and, and industry biographies and things like that, wow. dealing with giving themes. Uh, she was in movies like The Great Gatsby and Brannigan, The Last Days of Patton. Uh, she was Miriam, recurring on the Goldbergs as the aforementioned George Seagal's girlfriend. <laughs> Dumb. She was uh, the co-star of uh, and, and regular uh, on a TV series that lasted eight episodes called Big Seamus, Little Seamus, starring Brian Dennehy. And if we could have nice things, we would have gotten 11 seasons of that shit. <laughs> so she had a great career. Next, we have Dr. Barron, who was James Green. I'm sure you recognized him from tons of films like The Missouri Breaks. Great. Ghost Story, Hanky Panky, I know you all remember, Road to Perdition. He was the elevator in the, and just brilliant in the days and nights of Molly Dodd. If you remember, that is one that I always talk about because I fucking loved it. He was the oldest city council member in Pawnee. If you remember him, Fielding, <laughs> he was fucking great. Oh. He did 22 Broadway plays, beginning with Romeo and Juliet, starring Olivia de Havilland. Uh, he was the original Inherit the Wind, The Changeling, Foxfire with Tandy and Cronin. He was in the Robards revival of Iceman Cometh and You Can't Take It With You. His last show on Broadway is one of my all-time favorites, La Bette. Just a genius, genius career. All right, next, you end up with Pamela Seagal as OG. She currently goes by Pamela Adlin, and you may know her from Grease 2, her very first credit. Wow. Or say anything, which she was also terrific in. Now, let's keep going, because in Californication and Louie, which she also wrote and produced, she's fantastic. And she's currently killing it on Better Things, on FX, which she created, produces, writes, and stars in. Three Emmy noms as an actor in it and a Peabody Award. And she is still not best known for that. Her Emmy-winning run as Bobby Hill. Bobby Hill. Called King of the Hill will always be the leading credit for this amazing performer. Oh, gee. Have John McLeam as Fento in the movie version of Iceman Cometh with Lee Marvin. He was in that, directed by John Drankmanheimer, of course. He's in My Fair Lady, Cool Hand Luke, In Cold Blood. First Blood, and The Missouri Breaks with fellow guest star James Green. Tons of Broadway, Max Anderson, and Shaw Originals. All right, then you have Lois Hall as Warren. Awful lot of small co-stars of great roles in films like Seven Brides, TV like The Sisto Kid and Lone Ranger, all the way through Nip Tuck and Six Feet Under. A couple of leads in B-movies with wonderful names like Pirates of the High Seas and Daughter of the Jungle. Just stellar career. And finally, you come to my boy Ray Watt. Love him Lico. so much. Fuck yes, genre hero. Of course, we immediately think of Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, one of the great all-time performances in television history, starting this same year where he played Lico. I always go to Reaper one of his uh, runs as a regular on TV show as the devil, one of my all-time favorite portrayals of that character. Mm. Just like a game show host that has the best time, doesn't really have anything bad in mind for anybody. He's just doing his job and he's charming as fuck and I, I really just love it. Um, all through his career, uh, I looked him up on IMDb and while it was loading, I'm like, uh, he's gotta have 250 credits. I was wrong, I apologize. He had 248 so far. Wow. So 
the week. I assume he will have 250. <laughs> uh, the recent thing I saw him in was Psych 3. He was a regular on Fresh Off the Boat until recently. Right before that, while he was already huge, he did a couple years on Young and the Restless just for the fuck of it. <laughs> what a hand that was. He was a regular on Savannah, which was a weirdly charming show in the 90s. Recurring before that in things like Days of Our Lives in Dallas, L.A. Law, Not Slanding, 90210, 24, The Closer, Tim and Eric, and the movie. Kroll Show, uh, How I Met Your Mother, uh, etc. Now, movies. Lots of politicians and things like Bob Roberts and X-Men First Class. Mm. Uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, army guys, business liars, like in wonderful performance in RoboCop. Uh, he's not often nice or kind, which is why this episode is such a joy. He is so innocent and giving in this, which is not something he did very much of. Um, in The Journey of Natty Dan, he's also something that's not the uh, kind of over-the-top satirical character that he mostly plays. And of course, my very favorite performance of his is as the, uh, the doomed hero, Alec Holland, the Swamp Thing, fucking awesome. Yes, genre warrior, Ray Wise. All right. Well Incredible. done. Uh, all right, Thank for you. the Nemesic files, uh, this the most of the outside shot or all of the outside shots was filmed uh, where a couple of TOG episodes had been filmed, one that actually harkened back to people watching other people. The most interesting thing was it was a two-day shoot, 100-degree weather during those two days, and because there were so many uh, bees and scorpions uh, and spiders and stuff around, the cast was not allowed to wear attractants such as deodorant. So oh. it was a sweaty, stinky couple of days. Bees! Yeah, and Weimer, the uh, uh, director, he shot all the scenes with the Matakins uh, in Tableau. And you might have noticed this, the way everybody was shot on the the surface. And he did that because he thought this was a morality play. So he was trying to recreate little tableaus that would harken back to that. All right, let's uh, crack this baby open. We start, as always, with scene one. <laughs> 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 Which I label backstory and exploding batteries or flirting with the prime directive, question mark. Uh, so Jordy's question about power needs and what mm -hmm. the watch station needs opens up a floodgate of exposition but I thought it was uh, pretty well done. It gave us a lot of backstory. And although you could see that they were trying to give you exposition, it was justified. What do you guys think about that? That opening bit where we got an onslaught of information, all based on why they need as much power. No, I really like uh, the, the aspect of it that involved uh, Picard doing the avuncular thing that he does, guiding someone through something they can kind of figure out for themselves. <laughs> yes. I was just, I did not know that duck blinds would be so prevalent in the 24th century. That, that was the metaphor that, and they refer to it as the duck blind continuously. Yeah. The first time they said it, I was like, what? And then they explained immediately what it was. And I was like, all right, that fucking thing. Are there even ducks in the 24th century? I don't know. <laughs> We've never seen a duck. I, I think I love this opening a lot because of all the things you mentioned, uh, but it's got the best ending of someone saying, are we, are we going to get to Warp 7? And then that love, lovely close-up of Picard, go to Warp 9. Warp 9. Warp 9. Yes. And you're like, warp nine. that was intense, because I, I was thinking it before he said it. I was like, he's going to go to Warp 9. <laughs> I know he's going to go to Warp 9. And it was that perfect like uh, 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 release. And then You totally made the Picard happy. <laughs> but I mean, we know they can go to 9.37, so like, let's go there. Like, what a come on. Get These guys aren't worth Seven? Would it have been as dramatic if he said, go to 9.37777 repeating? No, but they would have gotten there faster. Oh, that's true. They could have saved Palmer. <laughs> yeah! We, we speed off to the island, and then we see the camouflage watch station, and this is right as soon as we see it, this is where it's like, all right, Prime Directive. This, something's going <laughs> to go wrong, uh, and sure as shit it does. And I thought there was a really nice... Uh, the, the blue lightning explosions were lovely. This was a very nice yeah. special effect here. Agreed. This was around the time of Warlock and all the kind of electricity flowing through stuff, digital revolution. It started with weird uh, science and ended up here. Right. Oh, yeah. Years later. It's an, uh, an homage. Uh, and so it <laughs> sets it up. We get, we know where it's going. 
they're exposed, somebody has been seen, and now we know it's going to be pretty tense. We cut away. On to scene two. So this is post-opening credits. We open up. Uh, I, we see two uh, Vulcan-like characters walking, and I wrote uh, working-class Vulcans. This is exciting. Or we could call this <laughs> Captain Lee Scott credit. Oh, boy. This is going to be a long guest star segment. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I was correct <laughs> i thought the i thought it was interesting that they talk about you know how they are a vulcanite uh group and then they specify that their evolution was similar and parallel to vulcans so that they're a completely different species but they will look like the vulcans because they evolved like the Vulcans, and we already have a lot of ears. So <laughs> you think that's what it was? <laughs> it was? Listen, we spent a lot on the blue lightning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't they say? Aren't they near Vulcan? Pro? What don't they call them? Proto Vulcan? Proto Vulcan. Proto Vulcan. Right. But then they say it's a it's a similar evolutionary history to the Vulcans or something like that in that first. Uh, teaser scene right which feels weird when you see them because they're like these are humans they're acting like right. they're not acting at all like vulcans did you know with the lot there's no references to logic or anything they're just being you know folksy humans so it was just out fishing yeah it was odd well the vulcans in their backstory weren't logical until after they destroyed their race and then that's what split them between the vulcans and romulans and to try to control their own rage, they develop this 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 logic and uh, uh, almost a religion of logic. It's not uh, a, a physiological thing. Wait, start over. Uh, so, uh, so, so it's it, it's in That's one of the point. books. It's in one of the books, no, uh, and it has like Kirk's dad, and you know, it's where you first meet the Romulans, and it gives you the whole backstory about them. Anyways. Let's crack open scene two. As we come in, the framework and everything is still buzzing with blue lightning, so that was pretty exciting. They it's like a it. it's like a Tesla coil up in that bitch. <laughs> it is, <laughs> and uh, and that's the reason why they had to go with the, the Vulcan ears. We know now that that's uh, canon. Uh, super advanced bronzed age Vulcans. I wrote down uh, because they seemed more medieval than bronze age, especially with that whole sundial thing and like it. it, it there wasn't like weapons and the way they talked seemed very like, you know, we have an understanding of there and who we are and didn't seem bronze agey to me. The raw weave cotton tunics. Yes. Are just so funny. <laughs> They're just so funny. And as we now know, 100 degree temperature and no deodorant also horrible. <laughs> oh. Wear or be and all of those prosthetics on, right on your forehead. No, thank you. You will never convince me that Ray Wise smells bad. <laughs> it will never happen. Nor, nor Bobby Hill. Sorry. Smells like roses and baby powder. Uh, Oji goes to the sundial and rut row. The watch post is spotted right away. So they get right to this. Don't screw around. I mean, that's it, it gets us going with this. Uh, and then I got, damn, the dad sees people beaming away. He sees them beaming away and he gets a big shock and falls off a rock and has a pretty nasty fall. I thought it was a great little twisted leg there because it gave me a little shiver because yeah. he looked really messed up. But I mean, this is a great sci-fi premise. They they set it up that even though maybe they're not Bronze Age, they don't know what's going on. And then you see somebody disappear in front of your eyes. This this is how gods are made. This is how myths are born. And so we're, you know, Wait, off to the races. It's saying, fun. Are you saying that that people teleported back in the... <laughs> you've been watching too much ancient aliens. No, not understanding what lightning is, you know? Now that's oh, the okay. lightning god. And now, you know, like, these are the invisible gods. They can just vanish. The transportation gods. The Picard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Picard. The Picard. <laughs> well, what I'll say about this scene is that they definitely got their money's worth shooting in this park. <laughs> like that climb that he does up there, they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna use as much of this for screen time as we possibly can. Yeah. Uh and 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 take advantage of it. I loved the fall down there too, but then it's really just the fact that he puts his hand on the side of the thing, which seems to get a shock. And that changes everything for this poor, poor guy. 
He's going to take a big old trip. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Crusher's got a, a very big heart. Yeah, she's there right away. Now, what about the off-screen dialogue between her and Riker? Because you don't see them, but you hear her, I got to go help them. <laughs> and she rushes down. Next scene, and you, uh, she beams him right up. F the front prime directive, which always is the case, right? Anytime the prime directive is brought up, we're going to blow it up. Oh, yeah. I don't understand why the prime directive would allow them to set up an observation lounge uh, here in the first place. Like, doesn't that just beg for some type of malfunction like this to happen, even if you do it over 100 worlds? I, I, that's the only thing I'll challenge about this episode's yeah. premise is like, why were you doing this in the first place? The arrogance of we'll never get caught. Yeah. We can be invisible. I love the thought, by the way, because uh, because Daddy O gets you know beamed up and and uh, OG sees him, and then she goes right up to the blind and is like touching yes. the and I'm like yeah. the I want to see the reverse angle of this where everybody who's still in the room is like <laughs> don't move <laughs> get out of quiet right. it's cool <laughs> well and this is a this is the same thing from a horror movie where. You go into the dark garage, even though like weird things have happened to your friends. <laughs> you oh, find right. like their eyes gouge well, out, and you're like, "It's safe for me." Like she runs up there to see, and she's gonna touch what it. the danger is. Yeah, uh, and she sees a little bit of dark magic herself. She sees uh, Crusher and her dad beaming away, and that's disintegrate. And then, yes, disintegrate to her knowledge from her point of view, and that's why she actually runs up there. And sees it. So, I mean, what do you guys think about this setup? Now, I mean, we've had some nice little action, and we're obviously going full head into uh, the Prime Directive because both people that we've seen are now, uh, they know something's up. They've seen things that can't be real. So, it's absolutely a Prime Directive episode. Looking back from uh, a, a point of view where now I understand a little bit more about the history of dangers from and uh, continual trauma about colonization i i think the federation is is bullshit at it they just put a nuclear reactor into the side of this hill put some aluminum around it set a couple of scientists down there and said all right bye let us know if anything goes wrong and they Dumb luck they could go anywhere near it to begin with. Like, what was the plan? There was, there was literally no plan here. And that's okay. Now, I guess we're asked to suspend that disbelief. But no. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a probably big knock against the whole Prime Directive in this universe. Like, it, it, it hasn't worked yet. And uh, in this episode, it doesn't work quite right away because you're like, why are we here from Greg? Like, why are we even here? And two, there doesn't seem to be anything in place to help us if things go wrong. But of course, you know, drama is the day something special happens. And if there were things in place, we, you know, we wouldn't have an episode, I guess. It wouldn't be an episode. <laughs> uh, right. So moving on to scene three, we're uh, back in space and daddy wakes up in the sick bay, which immediately I wonder is like, why don't they just uh, transport him to the holodeck? Can't they set up a makeshift sick bay there? And like, so he thinks he's back on his own planet and trick him into. Uh... They could possibly also just, you know. Put a bag over his head. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're going dark places tonight. <laughs> I mean, just like there are lo-fi solutions to this. Like you don't have to let the guy wake up in a futuristic spaceship, right? As far as he knows. And then, yeah, Crusher's like, "Damn, he woke up!" Like, couldn't you have given him the right dosage to keep him out for a certain amount of time, or put him in a uh, a, a cocoon type of thing, like we've seen in other you know, sick bay episodes. Like I feel the uh, holodeck idea is genius. It's like, why don't we just do that? Yeah. I love before he wakes up, there's a great moment where Picard comes in. First of all, has the kind of upsetting line. Why didn't you let yes. him die? That's my next thing. Let's cool. crack that open. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Let's crack that <laughs> open. <laughs> I love it when Picard just drops a bomb like that. So what do you think about that, though? I mean, how did that affect you? Uh, I mean, I, I'm with her on the point of, like, he's in that because we, like, 
we caused this situation it wouldn't hurt if we hadn't have been there in the first place uh which you know right. like yeah, yeah. fair enough they didn't have any contingencies but it seems a little outside of who we know him to be right uh it's, it's a little too harsh for that i cannot stop thinking about the time a few episodes ago where we saw him shoot himself and uh i just think that changes a man yes <laughs> But, and he's still not even the same man as he was because he's a copy from the transporter. <laughs> right. Like, I think I think Picard is a much darker character than I had previously thought as a child. He is very harsh about the Prime Directive in this one. And I, I, it is this scene in particular where he, yeah, you're right, he should just let him die. And you're like, I, you know, we'll get to it a couple of scenes later. But when the scientist says the Prime Directive has already been broken, like, it's not like you can break it more. You know, and and Picard is trying to argue here with Crusher that no, there's shades. You could have done X, and that would have made it to be okay. And I, you know, and I'd argue that the Prime Directive was broken as soon as they built the freaking observation lounge. Right. But you know, that's me. Right, and once you introduce yourself into their society, you are you are responsible for whatever you know, mayhem you cause, uh, not, you know, shooting the horse because it's got a lame leg. Like it's, he seems to imply like, you don't interfere with animals in the wild. Why would you interfere with these people? Uh, and he's like, well, cause they're people. One, <laughs> yeah. Right. That's crushing. They know, point. we know that they know that we're something akin to them or more frightening that maybe were these gods or an animal just like you smell bad i'm running away well in fairness they all smelled bad very that's literal you're right (laughs) they were were stanky i want to i want to point out too though that that there's this great little like well you're gonna have to erase his short-term memory it's been done before yes and then she just daggers him with, I am familiar with Dr. Pulaski's technique. It's yes. so yes. fucking good and so like tense. And I, I just love it. Because you could tell yeah. she's not on board with whatever Pulaski had done, right? Like right. she's like, that's messed up. Um, but she I, does it. Right. And she does. <laughs> anyway. Or she tries. Maybe she doesn't. Yeah. Maybe I Crusher think messes I it think up on purpose. It's less like that she's not okay with it and more that it's fucking Pulaski's technique that is right. like, this oh. is her house. This is my house. Right. And I'll figure it out, Picard. Well, I, I lied at the end of season two thinking that they did not mention Pulaski again. I think this is, I actually read it for this episode. This is the last on screen mention during TNG. Uh, and I don't think she's mentioned again until an episode of Voyager um, in the future. But yes, this is the, the least acknowledgement that there was a, another doctor right. on the ship last season. <laughs> a couple months ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then dad wakes up to see more troubling things. Damn. He learns the captain's name. Picard. They say Picard a lot in this season. A lot. <laughs> And it's so many times that it's almost like, is this a word? Is it limit? <laughs> Rowan. All right. <laughs> All right. So we go into scene four. Daddy's back. Uh, Dad returns to the planet. Uh, he starts calling for OG. And it seems like Dad's memories weren't scrubbed. He remembers a lot. And then he starts tying what he remembers to old myths. Uh, and he takes off to tell the others. So, I mean, it's a bulk of the scene. And I kind of liked what they were doing with, you know, this is like, this is how gods are made. It's like uh, when you read um, Lord of the Flies the first time and uh, you start seeing the little symbolism of when you go primal, the little things start making, you know, people bigger and you know you got the conch and put you know piggy on a <laughs> on a stick <laughs> uh, make it bleed yeah, it, yeah. it's uh, this is this is how myths are born uh so that was kind of fun yeah i used to work at the at the science center here in town and i would do um the uh the shows in the star lab and getting to talk mm. about constellations and the you know working in the planetarium um and that was my favorite thing to talk about was like where these stories come from. And it's because of what you were talking about, Jimmy, like we don't know where this lightning comes from. This is scary. We need a, we need a story. 
And look, there's some dots in the sky that kind of look like a lightning bolt, I guess, maybe, sort of. I don't know. It's just fascinating. And it also reminds me of my yeah. one of my favorite plays uh, ever, uh, Mr. Burns, the electrical play. Yeah. Uh, right. Our good friend Eric Gratton was in. Uh, but, you know. Nightmares. Nightmares yeah. I have. <laughs> for you, but for us as an audience, it was revelatory. No, I had a great time, but I have nightmares. <laughs> I, I thought of that play, too, because it did have that kind of thing where you take things that we now know as you know real and then oh we're going to adapt it to a different way of thinking a more primitive way of thinking perhaps and it, yeah it's doing that here and the only part i don't like about it though is that it seems so transparent this is this is an this is a scene where the writers are telling us versus showing us like i feel like ray wise does a great job in this episode being as earnest as he is but if you give it to a lesser actor uh, this would feel very wooden, uh, this dialogue, I think. Right, which is why they gave it to Ray Wise. <laughs> which is why it works. It's smart of them to do that. He's so good. And and you're right, like that's such a difficult character to play because we don't want to mean things. Like it's much more, uh, it's much easier to glib over things. And that's what a lot of characters do. A lot of what actors can rely on and be entertaining doing. And with a character like this, if you don't just mean it, <laughs> like it's going to be torturous to watch. He's so good. Indeed he is. Uh, and that takes us into scene five, our first conference room scene of the episode. Yeah. And the whole scene is set up just to show us the importance of not interfering with these people. And then we get a little hint. Riker has a plan. And I wrote down, <laughs> is it a dress up plan? <laughs> and that takes us right into scene six. It's a dress up plan. <laughs> or Riker and Boots. Yes, can we talk about those boots for a second? Good those boots with short pants and naked knees. Jesus Christ, what was happening? Amazing. <laughs> they wanted to see if they can get away with it without him. Uh, complaining or right. showing any, and, and and they were really impressed with how right. far they right it was like they were trying to hit. let's see if he's one of those asshole actors he throws a fit put him in short pants see what he does have the other pants yeah. on hand like we'll give him long pants like, but put him in the short pants see what he does he's like I don't care he's like make him shorter <laughs> I'll wear whatever I don't care shoot that shot with Troy and him showing up in the middle of, of where they are in that park was is really good. Yeah. It actually showed a really great like, right. production value kind of it was like, oh, this feels like those, you know, Star Trek TNG movies. It felt really real. And I'll tell you, here's a little bit of canon that you won't hear anywhere else because it's not true. Um <laughs> Troy looked really good as Mentankin, and this is something that uh, she and Riker would revisit to get, you know, get things sparked uh, up again to cannon. to get back to their younger years uh, as they got older. Um, that's fair, and you know, that's what you got to do. Well, at first, I mean, Riker was not on board with going there as God. Remember, he's like, "We want us to go there as gods? Like that's ridiculous." Oh, he wants to dress up. Okay, nah, nah. yeah, that's. Okay. I'll be a bumbling fool. That that works. Right. And then as they're walking, there's a fun bit of little anthropological exposition, right? Where Troy is explaining why they should walk uh, in single file with the woman up front, uh, <laughs> which begged the question, legitimately, I think, is Riker about to get pimped out? Oh, definitely. Because she says, you need to know who to talk to for services. You know, like, basically. And any fully functional services will do. <laughs> That's what they're going to trade that cloth for, I guess. That little bundle that they were able to... If you're if you're importing things, maybe carry a little bit more. Is all I'm saying, right? It's like a, it's like a, a little parcel. <laughs> like you, you walked all this way. Yeah, and so they show up uh, to like the sort of the meeting area, and again, there's like twelve people on this planet, <laughs> or at least they they pick twelve people to represent this planet because otherwise, like beam them all up, beam them all up, <laughs> let them see it. And, you know, and don't talk to them. Just let them hang out. Eventually, they'll get used to it just because they're like, this is this is normal. All the gods, they don't say anything. We can talk to the wall and it'll give us whatever we want. And you're done with it. 
Prime Directive over. The, the Holman Hawkins are on the Enterprise, and you don't have to worry about it because there's only 12. Okay, Jim. <laughs> yes. So, for the rest of their lives, they would be on the Enterprise. Yes. None of the other people would talk to them. It would be like they were invisible. They could talk to them. And this and this solves the problem. You just don't. You don't. You don't explain it's anything. Just, it's like they're not even there. Right. You're just like. I like it. Go to your room. You can have whatever you want. You're in space. I would watch that movie. Yes. Take my money. You know, after a few months, they're like, we're in space. It's working out for us. <laughs> Because, right, it's, it's, it's it. only this one family group, right? Like, it's this <laughs> right. one village. It's one little village. And that is a good, I didn't even think about this until you're saying this. If they're so concerned about this one incident changing the history of this entire planet. Take those people away. That scene, take them away. Or, <laughs> yeah, right? Just the get, <laughs> take get rid of them. Take those people away. Or. I wrote that and I was like, <laughs> I would be really fun in the writer's room. Because the, the thing that's missing here is in any religion or in any, any way that there's like a formation of that type of thing, there's usually a proselytizer. There's the person who convinces other people that this is the way, right? Like, so Paul and Christianity and like, you know, Muhammad and all, like they, they had to be someone who was charismatic enough to get an entire population at least on board in theory with your religion, right? So all they need to do is just discredit that person right or like if one of these people you know this village may not even have one of those people who will take this story and make it be planet-wide as a religion so it seems just so far-fetched that they have to go through all of this stuff when they all just need to just be like nope this is not what it is and somehow discredit that one person then you're done quick counterpoint yes how does one discredit someone like this into i mean look around you today and see if it's possible to discredit someone like this in the eye of their up followers. until the end of the year there were people hanging out in texas waiting for jfk jr to come back from where he never was dead apparently well and birds are fake well that's right. true <laughs> it's true and you know so when they gather in this little the room though the arguments that the Mintakins make, again, doesn't seem Bronze Agey because they're they're aware that up there is stars. They don't quite understand exactly what it is, but they know it's not a magical place, or at least they don't think it is. It's that's the space where the Earth we move around it. Like they have, they seem to have a, a, a pretty good understanding of who they are and where they fit within this world. So it didn't come across to me that these guys were so far backwards. And this well, this know, actually helps to play into some later scenes. The Greeks are Bronze Age, right? Are they? I looked it up. I was like, because I was like, where? what happened during the Bronze Age? I mean, um, I, I, I think it's actually a little bit prehistory. I think you're right. Yeah, but, you might be right. But they would have had at least some, you know, basic knowledge of, of – uh, astronomy metallurgy Me not necessarily Metal metallurgy right. but like i don't i i challenge you a little bit because I, I think definitely metallurgy the only technology <laughs> we really see is a bow and arrow and the 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 buildings that they're in right yeah, that like bow we, and arrow was uh like made out of carbon fiber yeah it was <laughs> see, pretty, the way it was designed that wasn't hmm, that wasn't hmm. a wood bow it was a pretty cool looking bow it's like almost like but if you look at recurve bows that have been around like they look pretty fancy too and that's the same technology that's been around for a long time but i you know i, I it seemed bronze agey to me it definitely did seem okay. like it was like you know maybe 2000 bc of, of our you know to to uh, you know 1000 bc around there all right scene 7 the palmer dilemma <laughs> scene 6 right before we get here um Bacard is talking about the contamination. So the, it's, the whole thing is contaminated, them being exposed. Uh, and then Palmer's life, who they, they thought was just disappeared, and now he's discovered, and now there's further contamination. And then uh, Troy does something, I forget what it is, but she starts to lay a trap. She's like, she's got some machinations going on, uh, and she leaves most of the group away from where Palmer is. Uh, and there's lots of talks of the overseers and old legends. So the overseers, you know, the gods, I guess they, they were supposed to be. Uh, and then Riker really is pressing hard on these guys. Like these, they, they just arose. I mean, literally, they got here five minutes ago and they're like, really, should he be doing that? I mean, that's kind of crazy the way you're thinking. I mean, they're really pushing it for newbies. Well, their, their entire plan at the start of this is just to gaslight them. 
Oh, that was a that was a big dream you had. Like mm, that doesn't sound right to me. I mean, like it's so toxic, right. and it's all coming right. from Troy. It's the worst. And your your, your daughters and fathers can share dreams. Like, no, what? Really? How the fuck? They, st- they stand at the back of the group, just kind of going, "I heard this guy went the other way." And everybody turns around and they look behind themselves too. Like, oh, Definitely. it's a new guy, Riker. Kind of funny name, right? I I think they went too hard too. And it seems really bad that Troy would be the one who, like, she should be better at diplomacy than she is. Well, in tricking them, right? Because she should know. Yeah. Like, if she could sense something. She was seemed really out of her element. Didn't seem a lot of, of, of sensing stuff from her in this one. Well, there was a lot of thallium in the, in the sure. you know, dirt. And that gets in the way of sensors. And, uh... Yeah, thallium. She's, a, she's allergic to it, right? Can it? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Cannon. Uh, also, Cannon Riker really knows his knots. He does. He gets he gets Palmer out of there pretty quick. I love that Troy leads them all away, and Riker is left behind to trick an old man. Right. <laughs> and then to carry him, and it looked like he really did. Because <laughs> when he was running up that hill, it looked like a, an actor. He's like, "Whoo, you are a lot heavier than that." <laughs> sure. One more take, Will. Yeah. Sure, Will. Go ahead and say one more take. I got it. I know. And then I counted like two or three times where he goes out of view. Right. He could have. And he didn't call. Right. (laughs) So many times. Or the beaming. Be ready to beam me up. Why didn't he just go into like another room? Why did he he have to run away? So far. Yeah. (laughs) He had to run. It was the longest sequence because it was like, there's them over there. There's them over there. There's them over there. All I know is you you speed that up one and a half times and play some yakety sax over that, and it is comic gold. (laughs) (laughs) You slow it down by one and a half and play weird organ music, and it's Logan's Run. (laughs) Okay, so he finally asked to be beamed out. We see the unbinding of the old man and seeing Aiden back with him in Takens. And there's this weird moment um, there with the whole group, uh, I thought. And it's when the um, the leader of the Mentakens, the, the female leader, they ask her something and uh, she the, the actress does something with her head where she tilts it, she tilts her head to the left quizzically as if she's looking at something else and then walks away towards the camera and then she's looking off towards towards nothing um, and she does her little she thinks thinks about the problems like no we're not going to to kill these people that that's not what we do uh, and one it seemed like sort of a sophomoric choice like a a, a, a good actor just starting off uh, doing a monologue and they walk up to the front and they pretend like they can really see what is happening uh, and it really you know takes over their emotions uh, and it's you know something you quickly throw away so knowing that only someone with psychosis can really see something out there um, you're not looking at anything but it Harkened back to at the beginning of the episode, she did the same thing with her head, and I thought maybe the character was blind because she was moving her head almost like a cat, twitching it back and forth as people were talking, and it 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 just spoke to me as somebody who was trying to find the voice um, because she couldn't see, and then it came back to it, and it was just an acting choice, and of course she could see just fine. It seems to me to be part and parcel with what you were talking about, the director doing the morality play stuff. Mm. Uh, but I know you like to blame the actors and I like to blame the directors, so right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> they did a lot of viewpoints before they filmed any of her scenes. As they should. Oh. Yeah, but that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, even though I'm the one who brought up the whole tableau thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, that... You don't have to think and talk both, Jim. <laughs> it's, it's not doing well in that regard tonight. Back aboard the Enterprise in the Picard conundrum, masquerading in God-making, so uh, I don't know what that means. Is a prime directive really a thing? Because, I mean, we continue to just blow this thing off up it's amazing. and talk about we can't we can't go against it but of course we're gonna go against it because it's stupid 
it's not a human thing. Like it goes against every, I mean, it's like the whole prime directive in what they're asking people to do is like, you're begging them to, to break it. Even in this made up world, even in the world of Star Trek, it, it just doesn't ever make sense to the situations they apply it. So it, 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 it seems like it wasn't very well thought through. And time and again, Picard just ignores it. Even though he's the most staunch defender of it on the series, he's always the one who's like, well, yeah, I'm going to bring a woman up to the ship and have her look at her planet. This is the second time he's done it so far in the series. And I think he does it two more times over the course of the entire run. And uh, yeah, it just goes to show like you can't as much as you can try to argue your way through it. And we do it every time we have one of these prime directive uh episodes it's just it's it's impossible it's an impossible thing to attain yeah i mean the only solution and it's i think what would have become policy of the federation at this point is in a situation exactly like this you beam up the two people who saw you you destroy that fucking lab until it is dust and you just leave and they're part of the federation now those two uh kidnapping like, yeah like that's that's more that's, moral than no i don't think it's more moral i think that's what a a group like the federation will ultimately end up doing mm. that's that's what world powers did i think that's what the galactic power would do especially as we come to see that they're not all that oh all right well if we're talking about what they would really do there would be no watching or prime directive they just would have <laughs> taken over the planet it's Strip like mine. listen yeah. mentalkins yeah. you don't know this but this is a mcdonald's you're gonna love yeah. it <laughs> And guess what? You're the manager. Yeah. Or at least offer him, offer him the option. And I think those two would have taken it. Totally beloved the prime directive with bringing Nora up onto the ship and like, check it out. This is your planet. <laughs> uh, we have a moment with the, the leader of the, the, the research group, the older gentleman, and he's taking your stance. He's like, well, we're done. We uh, you know, we got to go get Palmer and do whatever we have to. And Bacard blows up at this, like at the suggestion, he really blows up. And it's just the first time in these three seasons where I was like, Patrick, dial it back. That's come on. <laughs> <laughs> you're chewing on the scenery there. It's, it's not, you're absolutely right. He's wrong, but you don't have to like right. blow up at the guy. He has no power. Well, so I will say, you just say no. I had called that old man yelly guy because I couldn't remember his name because every yeah. scene he's just yelling. So how do you overtake a scene partner who's always yelling in the scene? You know. Oh, so you think yes. it was the other actors bad acting that made Patrick bad? <laughs> like you had to, Kinda. you just had to come over the it's top. It's a thing that happens. I, really I literally does. wrote down yelly guy thinks this will lead to war. And then I said Picard yells at yelly guy. <laughs> That's what this episode should have been called. <laughs> Who yells at the yelly guy? <laughs> uh, all right. So we already talked about Nora gave us our thoughts of bring Noria, maybe, is it? Uh, bringing her up. It doesn't really work, though, right? We think it's going to. She genuflects to her god. Um, and, you know, Picard's not all about that. She's like, I'm not about that. <laughs> I don't deserve it. I actually like how he says, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. So he tries to explain that he's no better than Noria is. And he, you know, goes through a bunch of stuff about how he's just like uh, she is. Um, and, you know, did this hold water the, for you? Like when you, the, what the writers did. Do you think they gave him good enough language to convince somebody that he's not a god, you know, seeing the starship for the first time? I, I think he did. I think he I really like the scene. It's a very long dialogue scene uh, in the conference room where he's trying to explain it to her. And I feel like he's frustrated, doesn't know what to do. And he kind of finally lands on an idea that that, that sticks with her, which was, you know, the the, the technology of the cave and, and the house. And, and and that kind of thing, concrete examples that yeah. would make sense yeah, yeah. to her, I think would would convince someone. And I think she is for a moment uh, understanding what he is trying to get to. I think the thing that he fails with and then he gets immediately frustrated and skips it, talking about it, is like not having the ability to bring back life is just like that's something we some people can do. And then, and then he's like, I have to show her that now, too. Right. Well, and that comes later. Yeah. I really liked the fact that, uh, like, I, I, that they 
did sort of a false enlightenment moment here because I wrote down, oh, she gets it. Right. And because I thought I thought that his, you know, like what, how, how would that person look at you with your bow? Well, you, they would be frightened of me. And I was like, oh, she fucking gets it, which just makes the gut punch so much better later when she doesn't get it. Yeah. Right. I just I, I think it's really well crafted. Yeah. And I didn't think the words are bad. I was just wondering if you guys would have had a different argument. I mean, we'll find out when I get there. Like, I look forward to my opportunity to convince someone of this. I, I think I've got a, a really good plan, but I'm not certain it would work better than Picard's. Well, let's hear it. I know. Right now, you have to say it. Oh, I'd scream at them really hard until they <laughs> me. And then I'd call it good and say, if you tell anyone, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and if they get out of the line, for gods for a long time. And then you just kidnap them if that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> just shut up. Just shut up. Uh, so the scene ends, I think, beautifully with Noria saying, "Perhaps my people will uh, one day fly above the clouds." To which Picard says, "Of that." I have absolutely no doubt. And I, that made, I got a little goosebumps. I thought, oh, of course. And uh, I thought that was, that was wonderful. And for me, that's what made the gut punch really land uh, when she, of course, doesn't get it yeah, <laughs> at all. She's still operating under the premise that he's a god and right. he's just trying to talk to her. And she, I mean, she gets it, but she's like, yeah, but you're a god. I get yeah. all that. Right. <laughs> but you're a god. So we go into scene 11, Lakos in worry. So he's just down there fretting. Like, you know, the, is the Picard angry? What does the Picard want? And again, I liked this setup because it's it's a this was showing how people abuse religion and not telling us. We do get to a point where they tell us then, just in case we didn't get what was happening there? Troy lets us know. You know, she looks at the camera like, this is why religion is bad. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really great that, you know, he's he thinks he understands Picard. And he understands Picard through his own limited understanding, even though he thinks that's a god. But, of course, a god would think like he thinks, which is always the failure of religion, right? Uh, and I thought that was just wonderful because it, it, it made me angry. He's like, why do you think he thinks like you? The only thing I could say is that I appreciate how the writers could have gone more anti-religion on this by having the Ray Wise character like his celebrity a little bit here, right? Like he doesn't play it that way. He does play it very nice and innocent. Like he's just trying to do what he thinks is right, even though it's weird and crazy. He's about to shoot, right? you know, thing. But he's always, I think, trying to do the right thing. And I would have wondered if this might have been a more interesting morality play if he was, uh, it, like I said, enjoying this spotlight and started to say things that he didn't even think were true, but he realized he got something out of convincing mm. the others that he knew the mm. Picard because he was the one who was yeah. taken up and all that. For and sure. I feel like that might have been a more, well, maybe that's just my own proclivities about religion, but I feel like that might have been a more effective portrayal of religion. Yes, exactly. Right. Cause this is a little too uh, nice, I think. Well, I agree. I absolutely agree with both of you. Um, but I wrote down Liko isn't bad. He's just ignorant and that's just as dangerous. And mm. so I go back to loving that because I don't think it's a better way of portraying it. It's just another way that is, I think, just as valid. Like, you can be a good person and your ignorance can be just as dangerous as a malicious intent. Yeah. Uh, and that was what was fun. We've talked on this one about the saying that, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology would appear like magic. Today, I saw that that quote kind of inverted on itself and changed, uh, but the concept staying the same, and that's any sufficient amount of neglect is indistinguishable from malice. And mm. I think that's a really good way of looking at that. Yeah. You know, same kind of thing here. Any sufficient level of ignorance is, is so dangerous as to be indistinguishable from evil. Yeah. So all religion is bad, I think, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. It sounds like what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we move on to scene 13. Um, and this is truly the scene where we get everything is wrong religion because this is where actually Lakos is walking around uh, becoming the interpreter 
of the Picard, all based on his own personal feelings of his wife died in the flood, and now the weather's really bad, so, you know, everything is bad, and Picard is angry, and I have to kill Troy. Uh, so we already beat scene 14 over the head. We go into scene 15, and Troy talks the interpreter off a ledge, so finally Troy's doing, you know, what she's supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, and a couple of these little things, and Lakos falters. He doesn't think maybe he shouldn't shoot somebody, uh, but then, of course, he shoots him. <laughs> Which is great. He he shoots Picard with an arrow. That's a really good uh, cutaway, right? Because you could tell that he shoots the arrow. The arrow was attached to Picard. And then Picard jumps. You know, I don't know if it is, it is Patrick Stewart. I guess, do you see his face in the shot? But then he jumps backwards. And there's right. a pretty good fall backwards. Right, Eric? Not bad at all. You can barely see that foot in first. That's what you want, right? <laughs> well, I love that. I love that. That to me is 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 a, a chef's kiss on this sort of argument. Is is the idea of doubling down on something because you've spent so much time and energy, you know, professing it that even when your own god is standing before you saying, "Hey, flesh and blood here, no big deal. Shoot that arrow, gonna kill me dead." It's still worth the risk, right? Because it's it's too hard to break out of that mentality. Yes, the myth of pot committed. Uh, and that takes us to our final scene. <laughs> scene 16, uh Bacard is fine and wishing good journeys. They dismantle that watch post. Uh, I don't know what the point is. They can just make it invisible, but they want to let us know that they're out of there. Uh, and uh, we end with a gift, some thin explanation for the highest law and a touching gift for Picard. So lovely of them to give him, like, what was it? Some kind of it was a cloth? Of a tablecloth? A runner? I think it was a runner. Yeah. <laughs> for, his, for his table. Something they can always uh, remember him by. Well, that is a tableau shot to die for. Like, I just loved how they had set that up. It does look very almost church-like uh, in its presentation. It's it's a really beautiful shot. But, man, you thought they were going to give a better gift. <laughs> uh, and I thought it was interesting. They, they Nobody gets a Pulaski watch, which is I'm, I'm making canon for uh, Memory Wipe now. It's mm. now the Pulaski watch. Oh, uh, and so this small group of people knows about outer space. They know about spaceships and beaming and all of this. Does this make this little group of people far more advanced than anybody else on this planet? If there are indeed any other people on this planet. Within three or four months, they're all in jail. For <laughs> sitting crazy. That's right. They're gonna for heresy. Yeah, I shot the Picard, and I didn't start a religion. Oh, that was brilliant! I have to say, I love the way I love the way at the end she holds his hand the same way he held her hand when he was saying, "Feel my flesh, like I am human," and it's just it's a really nice bow uh, on on the end of the episode. Um, and I like to imagine that that becomes their sort of be excellent to each other, like party on Wayne, like moments where like, like that, that gesture, like becomes the sort of, and also with you moment for them. We are flesh and blood. Uh, and there you have it. Who watches the watchers? I do. And as we can see, it's nobody. Nobody watches <laughs> the watchers. Greg, what did you think about it? So I'm going to give it... Five bows, both in the bow that wraps up uh, at the end and also the amazing bows. They were really cool. I liked how they shot. Um, Yeah, middle of the road for me, even though I do enjoy the uh, morality of this. I think my particular thoughts about religion weren't really shown here. So I'm going to, you know, knock it a few points because of that. Um, But, you know, it is a slow episode. I don't really think the um, action that's in it uh, other than that, the, the first thing of him climbing, I really liked, but the action seems a little bit put upon when uh, like Riker's running with the, the guy. This didn't, I didn't really seem to be, I'm like, why are we spending so much time on that? Um, I don't really understand the prime directive any better after this episode, <laughs> which is part of the point it should be for this is to be like, oh yeah, we each one, we, we time we visit this, we should get a different aspect of it. And I, I feel like at the end, Picard was just like, ah, screw it. I mean, 
I don't even know. I, I, sure, we'll take your gifts and then we're gone, I guess. And that everybody's happy. Uh, it, it didn't have a, a, a really uh, theme that I could really take away from it other than don't do this. Don't watch. <laughs> <laughs> so five for me. All right. Kate, what about you? I'm going to I'm going to go on the other end of that spectrum. I'm going to give it eight and a half uh, poorly planned uh, textile presence. <laughs> <laughs> this has all the things I like about sci-fi in it. Uh, I, I love the idea of who of uh, I do love the idea of the duck blind, because even though it's not prime, direct, you know, you can argue about prime directive. It's super sci-fi, right? Mm. Uh, it's super, you know, the man naked in the zoo while the uh, all of the aliens watch uh, from behind the, the glass. And it's just got a great uh, cast in it. But yeah, I, 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 I think it's got a great beat and you can dance to it. So I'm <laughs> for it. <laughs> uh, I give it nine um, Bobby Hill, Leland Palmer con- collaborations. I, I think this is so far my very favorite um, guest star pairing. I didn't realize either one was them when I started the rewatch, uh, but very quickly it became clear that it was both of them. And I, I hadn't realized watching it the first time when I was a kid, because of course they hadn't each hit their meteoric rise yet. It was uh, this very same year for Leland Palmer, also known as Ray Wise. And uh, just a couple of years later, uh, <laughs> Pamela Adlin, uh, when uh, King of the Hill finally hit. Um, both of them are just wonderful in this and, and together and apart, uh, they really bring it a long way. For me, really all I need to enjoy something from beginning to end is one really strong performance I can hang my hat on. And uh, Ray Wise in this is that. All right. Well, uh, I'm more on the end of Kate and Eric. I'm going to give this eight Erics from the neck up because that's all we can see of Eric in our filming tonight. And I'm absolutely in love with it. Uh, if this is some of my favorite sci-fi and in fact, I'm kind of falling in love with what they're doing with the Prime Directive. <laughs> that even if it's by accident, if, if they're bungling their way into it, blowing up this big idea that they have is so much fun because it's a dumb <laughs> idea. And it's they're dismantling it themselves. And that's a lot of fun to watch. I love the way they dealt with the religion that they show us how these simple things can, uh, the things that are explainable uh, from a certain point of view, seem unexplainable and and then from that magic is born um and that can very quickly be abused and turn into malicious <laughs> acts and uh that's fun to put it in the context of of sci-fi uh and to show as a smarter people from the future who will uh, walk you out of that ignorance hopefully so it was a a fun episode you know i think you should check it out if you haven't um i've had a couple of beers and now my pants are wet So we'll see you next week. My pants are wet too. (laughs) We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 